If you were to say, what is central to your faith? I'd be curious what word or words might come to mind, might take that space. Maybe justice, community, compassion, hope. Jesus makes it very clear in all of the Gospels what is central. When asked by the religious leaders what is the greatest commandment, Jesus does not flinch or hesitate. He answers clearly and concisely, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the foundation upon which all other commandments are built. And it makes sense. If you kill or covet, if you lie or cheat, maybe your heart's not quite rooted in love. Love, honestly, is the compass of our Christian lives. When in doubt, we can ask the question, are my actions, are my thoughts, are my words, are they loving? God knows we don't always get it right, but time and again, love is our North Star, guiding us home to ourselves, to one another, and to God. And yet, in our scripture today, we often find ourselves stuck, focusing on one point rather than Jesus's beautiful argument for love and grace. We get stuck with the wealthy man coming and asking Jesus how he might inherit the kingdom of God. And Jesus replying with the almost comedic words, it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. What a silly image, an enormous camel fitting through the eye of a needle. But there is so much more to this passage. The words that come later about how for God nothing is impossible, and the clincher ending that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So much wisdom available when we only choose often to focus on one part. Reading the scripture this past week, I was struck that our compass word love actually appears in this passage. And what's especially interesting about that is the word love actually rarely appears within the Gospel of Mark. Really, it only appears in one other section when Jesus is telling of the greatest commandment. And maybe that's significant, that in this hard-to-take, confusing passage where we often get stuck, love appears. That Jesus' words, his response to the man, was rooted in above-all-else love. And that maybe sometimes we try too much to be right, to get in the final word, the self-righteous feeling filling us. We want to, after all, win the debate. That we forget our words too, even when hard to speak, are called to be rooted in love. The scripture today is from Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. 
You know the commandments. You shall, not, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all those since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields with, persecu with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and last will be first. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorified in your sight, for you, O God, are our rock. You, O God, are our redeemer. Amen. For those of you raising teenage daughters, or who can think back to when you yourself were a teenage daughter, or maybe you have nieces or know of teenage girls, it is a truth universally acknowledged. It is a hard stage, both for parents and for the teens themselves. And maybe, maybe this is true for t all teens, regardless of genders, but I can only speak from my own experience. See, as a teenage girl, you're stuck in this impossible middle of wanting to fiercely claim your independence to establish your way of doing things, to explore and experience the world unconstrained. And yet, and yet there are also times where you want to snuggle on the couch and watch a movie with your parents. These days, especially, our young people are faced with a barrage of messages about who they should be. A siren from the rocky shores called grow up faster and faster. Through social media, instant feedback about how young people present themselves to the world, asking more and more of them. Thankfully, that wasn't an issue 
when I fought my way through middle school and high school, but I still remember how challenging it was. Now, disclaimer, I was a largely good kid. <laughs> I never got into any serious trouble, but I fought my parents, and bless her, I especially fought my mother. I didn't want to do things her way. A gentle nudge often exploded into a full-force nuclear war. I must confess, I often argued for argument's sake. At the time, these little ant hills seemed mountainous. And I remember my mom crying after one argument, saying, Kendra, everyone says you're so nice, but to me, you're so mean. So to all you parents out there in these trenches, who knows? Maybe your daughter will, or son or child will one day become a pastor. My mom, to her credit, says she has no memory of this fight. Maybe the teenage years are like the newborn stage. You forget so that you keep going. Expecting our second daughter in March, I can only imagine what awaits us in adolescence. I tell my husband I pray that our girls get his easygoing temperament. He kindly says that he wants nothing more than to raise strong women. But at that age, I had a fierce desire to establish my own way. Studying adolescent development later in college and divinity school, I know that this individuation is actually healthy. It was a healthy thing I didn't always want to call my parents from school. <laughs> but dear God, it was also so hard. I remember my mom frustrated with my hard-headedness one day saying, oh, you would be great on the debate team. And she meant it in frustration, <laughs> and I can't help but wonder if she later regretted those words, because later that week, I joined my high school debate team, putting my argumentative skills to maybe a more productive use. I loved debate. For the debate nerds out there, I started in Lincoln-Douglas, the value-based debate made popular by presidential candidates Lincoln and Douglas, where you pick a value set upon which you construct an argument in incremental time blocks. I loved that feeling when a good point was made, the face of the other debater trying to frantically construct a rebuttal. There was pride and a puffing up and a self-importance that was created in all of that. And today, in our scripture, it feels a little bit like Jesus himself is on a debate team, constructing his value-based argument of what it means to get into the kingdom of heaven. An unnamed man comes to Jesus. Like so many unnamed folks in the Bible, we're invited to see ourselves in this man. And initially, nothing is known about him other than the respect he shows for Jesus, who he calls good teacher. Jesus' initial argument begins, why do you call me good when only God is good? A thought nugget that Jesus throws out there and then quickly moves away from, on to his next point, that the man already knows the answer to his own question. How does one inherit eternal life? You know the commandments, Jesus says. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your mother and your father. To which the man replies that he has done this since his youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. 
And it is from this place of love that Jesus says the next thing, a hard thing. You lack one thing, Jesus tells the man. Sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. The man grieves at these words because it is only at this point that we discover he has many possessions, and it'll be hard to give it all up. Sometimes in our lives, we confuse love with keeping the peace. We avoid hard conversations and uncomfortable truths. We diminish it as insignificant or unimportant. After all, the man has been keeping so many of the commandments since his youth. He's obviously trying to be faithful. Did Jesus really have to say these words that obviously troubled and tormented? But here we see Jesus do just that. He doesn't ignore or sweep under the rug. He says the hard thing, because what is hard can also be loving. So often when we hear this scripture, though, we end here. We stop the story here with the man going away brokenhearted at the impossibility of the task ahead. And with us stuck, maybe in our own internal accounting of how like this man are we. But the good news is that the passage doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop with hard truths, though those must be spoken. See, Jesus goes on in the text talking about how hard it will be for folks to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The disciples, a little self-righteously, saying, well, while he got it all wrong, Jesus, look at us. We've gotten it right. We've left everything. We 12 gave it all up, and we're following you. But Jesus, as is Jesus's way, offers a little bit of grace. For mortals, it is impossible, but for God, for God, all things are possible. For God, all things are possible. And this statement in itself is rooted in love. And I can't help but wish that the man had stuck around to hear these words. See, he left. He left, maybe he was lost in his shame and his fear and his frustration. But he ended the conversation and he missed the gospel good news that actually lay in his own initial question. See, when the man asks Jesus how he can get into the kingdom of God, he doesn't ask, how can I earn my way into the kingdom? He asks, how can I inherit my way into the kingdom? How can I inherit the kingdom? And the word inheritance speaks more of a relationship than of an individual's action. When we inherit something, it is often not because of anything that we have done. Inheritances are gifts of abundance left by those who've come before us, often our families, unearned and unmerited, but connotating a relationship where the, inheritor, the inheritor's flourishing is foundational, desired by the one leaving the inheritance. When we are in the family, we will inherit the kingdom. For us, it is impossible to earn the kingdom, but nothing is impossible for God. 
through a love and a grace that we can only imagine. Now this love and grace, while freely given by God, is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. We cannot go on being selfish or intentionally hurting one another. What our inheritance asks of us is that reorientation. If we truly let God's love into our hearts, there's no way we can keep living as before, unchanged. Martin Luther himself, the big grace guy that my Lutheran husband loves to talk about, says that there is no way that we can do works to earn God's grace. But if we are not changed and inspired to live differently because of God's grace, and the ways that that grace has changed us, then maybe we need to explore if we've truly made room for that grace in our hearts. For it is in its very nature transformational. We will not be the same. It is a perpetual going forward directed by that compass's true north of love. Are we loving God? Are we loving our neighbors? Are we loving ourselves? Jesus ends with the ways that our loving necessarily reorders. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And while this was and is still countercultural, it wasn't unique. The Israelites have been hearing this message since Genesis, since the very beginning, when in the desert God gave the Israelites manna from heaven, bread to eat from the earth. And the people went out and they gathered the manna, some gathering lots and others only able to gather a little. But the end of that story, we're told that the amounts were evened out and everyone had enough. God is continually reminding us what right ordering looks like, what love looks like. I don't know what our future will hold with two little girls 21 months apart. I don't know what it will hold when they're infants or children. I don't know what it'll look like when they are teens figuring out who they are in this strange and hard world. Maybe, maybe they will have their father's sweet, kind temperament. Maybe there will be some doors slammed and arguments, excuse me, debates held. But as I read this passage, as I read this passage, I can't help but pray that we will be willing to share truths with one another in love, even when they are hard to say, and especially when they are hard to hear. And that in the shame and guilt that is bound to arise, that we will keep talking and listening and feeling God's love and grace move among us, helping us to reorder and right order our relationship. For this is truly the work of building God's kingdom. May it be so for me and in your own unique way. May it be true for you as well. Amen.